This week on another edition of the In-Depth Podcast, one of figure skating's most iconic stars, Scott Hamilton. Being a short, bald, half-neutered, chemoed, radiated, surgically repaired, retired male figure skater, how can I not be optimistic? If I can, if, if all this stuff can happen, anything can happen. Following years of a life-threatening and mysterious childhood illness. No muscle development in my legs, distended stomach. He overcame the odds, capturing four consecutive national championships, another four consecutive world titles, and winning Olympic gold in a little more than a decade. In March 2017, Hamilton said the third tumor shrank without treatment. But when we chatted a few months earlier, the future was uncertain. What's your reaction when you find out you have a third brain tumor? You get knocked down with cancer and then you survive. Then you get knocked down with you know brain tumor, then brain tumor, then brain tumor. It's like, that's, that's just the way it is. <laughs> you know, it's all right. This too shall pass. All that's coming up right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. So I wanted to start off by talking about figure skating. Okay. Um, your, yeah. your thoughts on the state of the sport today would be what? It's just different. You know, um, when, I, when I was competing, it was um, the sport was kind of doing this. You know, 76 Olympics with Dorothy Hamill kind of set the world on fire. And then Linda Fradiani was doing really well. Charlie Tickner won a world championship. I mean, there's always been a lot of success, but for whatever reason, Olympics was starting to do that as far as Winter Olympic viewership. Um, what happened in Lake Placid was a springboard for a lot of great stuff, not in, only in hockey, you know, with the hockey team winning the gold medal, but Eric Hyden and speed skating and all the interest in the Winter Olympics. And then I had my time in 84, and then Boitano was in 88, and then you had I mean, all these champions coming out like bam, 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 bam. And the business model back then was that you you do as well as you can competitively, and then because of amateur rules, you're, you're pretty much broke. So you, time to go to work, right? And uh, and you know, then uh, new leadership came into the ISU in the mid '90s, and that's when the sport was just absolutely everywhere. I mean, there's a um, primetime uh, professional shows and competitions and the world championships for the amateurs were on primetime and nationals were on prime. I mean, everything was, figure skating was as hot as it's ever been. Yeah, and it didn't hurt either that there was the Nancy Kerrigan, Tanya Harding. See, that's a good question because a lot of people think that was a boom. It's honestly what destroyed skating. Really? Yeah. What? Okay, think about this. So you have the highest rate Olympics of all time. Um, the, all the, the kind of the tabloid journalism that went into that Olympics that drove the short program in the ladies competition was the fourth most watched television program of all time. Okay, so then contracts are renegotiated for U.S. figure skating championships off those numbers and the world figure skating championships. Ten-year contracts each for $100 million. So there's a lot of money going into the sport. The leader of, of the, the president of the ISU decided that you know now is a time for you know to create new opportunity for uh, their skaters and you know so what happened was no one ever really wanted to turn pro again because they didn't need to. Mm -hmm. They got the thrill of the Olympics. They've got you know all the respect of of the uh, athletic side of the sport, and so what happened was under you know the kind of what the balance of what kept skating alive um, was the amateur and the professional you know. Amateurs would turn pro. Um, marquee and the pro side got huge. New champions would come in, new interest, new life, new all. But when um, they decided that they didn't really ever want anybody turning pro again, 
then um, new champions didn't come to the top. You know, there's a lot of things that, that didn't happen normally that would have. The professional side atrophied, and then the whole bottom fell out. Um, ratings went down. There, there was never, um, they were never going to be able to get the ratings to justify those kind of contracts. So all of that created a, an unstable economy, which just drove out the professionals, and then everything just sort of fell apart. I always tell people, when those $100 million television contracts came up, when they expired, what did they renew at? It was nothing, right? Zero. Right. <laughs> so, you know, people are always saying, well, we need another. No, that was the worst thing that happened to the sport because it created this false economy where it was really good before. And then that just, it just turned everything upside down. And, and now professional skating um, barely exists. And people stay um, amateur competitive um, until they're no longer, you know, competitive. You know, they used to retire at the peak of their game. Now, you know, they just stay in because there's nothing else to do. And so, you know, for me, um, it, it's really been, you know, a, a, the worst thing that could have happened to the sport. There was a Chicago Tribune article a couple of years back where the Bill headline Hirsch, yeah. uh, read, uh, U.S. figure skating, a shadow of itself, precipitous slide in interest attendance and TV ratings, has former and current stars wondering if the sport can recover. What do you think? Hey, I'm Mr. Optimist. You know, I, I, I always see good in everything. And I think that where there's void, there's opportunity. Um, I think a lot of things are cyclical. I think that when, you know, s things get to a certain level, people are going to want change desperately, and they're going to force change. So that means that um, it could be anything. It could be the most compelling story coming out of the Olympic Games, because it's always that's the catalyst for interest. And they decide, you know what? I, I've done everything I want to do. I'm going to go and I'm going to build something. And, and that's where the growth can happen again because if, if someone could just sort of ride a little bit on their coattails, um, then the sport can start to grow again. All these new opportunities can start happening. There'd be broader interest, uh, fringe interest, and the business of skating can get back on track. But it'll never happen if all our eggs are in one basket. And so I'm, I'm waiting. You know, I, I see a lot of people that are really hungry for opportunity. And you know, I'll mentor anybody that'll listen. What changes would you make to you know professional figure skating today, or, or the rather the whole system? Well, you know, again, it, it's it's not a big change. You know, so much of our our psyche is about let's just legislate something, and that that'll create you know change. Well, I, I know you don't love like the scoring system. Well, the scoring example. system actually, I think it does what it's supposed to do. Um, and I think that's the reality we live in now. It's, you know, I'm not going to be the grumpy old man that says, oh, when I went to school, I walked through snow 40 feet deep and nothing like that. It's like, this is the world we live in now. Um, we can look back on, oh, they probably shouldn't have eliminated figures because uh, that created this. And if they only would, uh, if they didn't go there with that. And in the judging scandal in 2002, if they'd only changed the way they select the judges, all that, you know, it's all these little things, these little forks in the road that, you know, is always kind of, oh, no, not, not that way. Come right. back. We're going to go this way. Right. There's a lot of that, you know, and, and everybody had um, their, um, their fish to fry, and they all wanted things the way, you know, each of those people that are in the decision-making 
process. They had their way of doing things, and I, you know, I respect them. I like everybody. I don't, I don't say they're the enemy. They're, no, it's just that's the way they saw it at the time. And when you do a lot of like the massive legislation thing, there's always unintended consequence that comes right. with that. And so all these things they thought were really going to be in the best interest of the industry were an oops, in my opinion. You know, they, they, I. I I debate this with anybody, mm -hmm. um, but you know when when you change the um, economics of skating the way it was changed so drastically, the, you know the bottom fell out. I want to take you back to your um, relatively um, the early days competing. I understand for a long while you kind of considered yourself a serial loser when <laughs> yeah, it came to competing. Well, I was distracted. I had no ability to focus or concentrate. You know, a lot of things happen, you know, and you remember those things and they sting. How it felt to come in last and how it felt to, you know, to always underachieve and how it felt to know that there was always something left in the tank when I went to train. And there was, I could have, I should have, I, why didn't I, you know, all those regrets. And then when my mom died, man, everything just flipped. I decided I never wanted to be that person again. I just I was gonna honor her and everything that I did. I was gonna mourn her in the more in the most uh, healthy way possible, and that's by honoring her every day of my life. And I, I I made a lot of really dumb teenage screw up mistakes and all those things. But the main thing was um, every time I stepped on the ice, I really wanted to take advantage of that time, so I would never be that person that um, came in ninth in the last competition she saw me compete in. The 1980 Olympics, um, you've said before, is really kind of the the, the best time you ever had competing. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Why? There's no pressure. Okay. You get to go and you're an Olympian for the first time and you got the jacket and, and you get to compete for your country and it's like, that's the dream. That's the, to be an Olympic athlete is the dream. And then what comes after that when you're expected to win or, it's hard. It's like um, it's almost um, it's it's cumbersome. It's um, oppressive. It's you know it it's the monkey on your back. It's like how do I actually do this? And the pressure is enormous. So when you when you're a tourist, it's way more fun, you know, than having you know. Like I always think, it's way more fun to go to Washington and, and see the sights than it is to actually work there. <laughs> you know, it's like. It's tough, and so for um, for me and for most athletes, you go to that first Olympics, and it's like, wow, that was fun. And this kind of ties into that. When you started winning a, a lot in '81, why was it hard for you to take? Well, I, I remember uh, when I was accepting the gold medal at the World Championships. I'm standing on the podium, and I'm looking around, going, "Holy cow! This is the lowest point." In skating history, if I'm its champion, because I, I was I never I always had that that world championship title on such a pedestal that it would be never anything that I could achieve, and then once I did, I was like, two things: one, I'm not worthy of this because it's way bigger than I am, and two, if this is the position I'm in, I better get on my horse. I I, I gotta I gotta live this thing. I've gotta I've gotta be the image I had of what a world champion is, and it drove me absolutely insane. How so? Because I just, I, I just put so much pressure on myself. I, I didn't even like going to the rink because I was afraid I wouldn't skate to the level that I needed to to, to honor that 
role or that position that I'd been put in by winning the world championship. And it was, um, I, I kind of limped through that year. My coach managed me perfectly, allowed me to have my freak out moments, all those things that, you know, I, it was just the enormity of, of that title and knowing that I had four years or three more years before the Olympics. And, and it was, how am I going to do this? I mean, ultimately, the Olympics is everything. And then I, I got to my second world championship, and I, um, some things happened throughout um, the competition where um, it, it just it went well. So in that competition, it became, it wasn't about it being a world championship with a fanfare and everything. It was more about, this is, it's just another competition, and these are the guys that I'm going to be competing against for the next two years. How do I beat them? How do I stay ahead of them? And so it was that whole different, now I was not freaked out by the world title, it made me hungry. The 1984 Olympics when you win gold, uh, you've said it was a feeling of loss and emptiness. Why? Well, that's just part of it. Um, you know, I, I didn't skate my best. You want your Olympic gold medal moment to be the greatest performance of your life. And some people have had those, you know, I think Dorothy had that, I think Brian Boitano had that. A lot of people, Evan Lysacek had that. There's been a lot of great skaters that had that Olympic moment where it was the best they've ever skated. And I kind of wanted that too, and I prepared perfectly. I eliminated every would have, could have, and should have going into that competition. And after um, figures, I won the figures, which I was hoping to be second. But my strategy going in was that um, if I was top three in every event, figure short and long, I, I couldn't lose because the guys that were great at figures were gonna take up a lot of that space for the guys that were great in free skating. And so the math works where if I'm just top three in everything, I can't lose, I knew that. And so we get to the you know, press conference, that's a whole other story, but when I'm standing on the podium um, accepting my medal, and it's you know, kind of your question about the loss and the, you know, it's, it's that little sheet of thing that you're standing on, you've gotta go medal around your neck, and the emotions are, it's every emotion, every emotion. It's like, I'm really happy that I, I can't, I mean, this is a dream I never even thought to dream until a couple years before. And um, I'm relieved that I didn't, you know, totally blow it. And, and then at the same time, all this feeling of like, I'm the only one standing here. Do you know how many people sacrificed for me to be able to do that? And I'm the only one standing here? It's like the guilt was unbelievable. It's like, I, this, I, I don't know. And then there's that, holy cow, now who am I? Because, you know, for most of my life, I've been pursuing this dream of competing at the highest level. Who am I? I, I don't, where am I going after now? What, I don't have an identity anymore. And then you look over the edge of the podium and it feels like you're standing on the edge of a cliff. It's, it's like, you almost get dizzy thinking like, oh, wow, my whole life is now gone <laughs> totally 180. It's like, oh, oh slow down. And, and I, I was old enough to know that life was forever going to be different. And it was really a crazy, um, it was a crazy five, six minutes that I was standing on that podium. Why after winning gold do you stick the metal in a paper bag and put it in your bedroom <laughs> drawer? Um, you know, I, I, I process that now all the time. I think I knew that I'd seen enough 
where I didn't want, I didn't want that to hold me back, right? I didn't want me to be putting my whole life onto that moment. And it was really interesting that um, right after the Olympics, two things happened. One, I was invited to speak at the Paralympics banquet in Denver. And so I walked in, you know, thinking I'm not in this stuff. And I walk in and I see all these athletes with medals just like mine around their neck that didn't have legs, that were blind, that were, um, and I'm like, I did this able-bodied, and they, their challenges were much greater than mine, and, and they, they were conquering mountains and all these. I go, okay, remember this always, and just be humbled by it. And the other part was I went, and the governor of Colorado, um, Governor Lamb, uh, invited me to come to his office, and I thought at the time it was a photo op. But um, I got to his office. There was another gentleman there. The governor excused him, so it's just me and him. And I'm looking, I'm, I've never had a political you know, situation like that before, and I was really not prepared for it at all. And he just said, look, um, my wife met you at the parade. They did a big parade when I got back. And she thought that you were a really grounded, nice person. I go, well, thank you. And he said, I just, want, I just want you to know there's this thing called the hometown hero syndrome. <clears throat> and I go, what's that? And he goes, it's like the, the, the boy in high school. Um, it's a quarterback of his football team, and he throws the big pass at the end to win the state championship. And he's carried out of the stadium on somebody's shoulders. And he thinks the rest of his life is going to be that way. It's not. I want you to enjoy everything that you've earned. I want you to enjoy every moment of this time, but it's not going to last. And I want you to truly understand that. And um, I just felt like I owed you that. Um, and I've never forgotten it because it was one of those things where it's like, okay, so the metal, it can't be a part of my everyday world. It's got to go away. And so it just, I put it in a bag and it lived in a drawer for six years until um, I got inducted into the World Figure Skating Hall of Fame. And then it was like, ah, I can get rid of all my stuff. To, to what extent <laughs> does any part of you wish you held on to that? Zero. How do you think you've been able to use your size to your advantage in your sport? <laughs> Most people think size is a disadvantage. Um, you well, know, I'm, I'm going to talk about that too. When yeah, yeah up, but, so. but you know, it's, it's, um, I had a judge tell me in 1978 that it's really nice that I'm finally doing well. But to please understand that I'll never be competitive on the international stage because I'm too short. How do you get past that, right? And you know, being the short guy in class, you know, it's hard to, you know, it's like socially feel awkward and to be the shortest or to be the anyist when you're going through high school is not good, you know. So if you're an ist, then you want to be invisible, right. the, the most invisible ist. <laughs> you know, that's the only one that's acceptable. But for me, it was, in skating, it was perfect. You know, the fact that I didn't grow for four years growing up when I was sick as a child actually turned into a blessing because I'm smaller, so I recover quicker. You know, um, I, I, I can move quicker. If, if somebody tall goes up sideways into the air, it's, it, they, they can't adjust, you know, and I can adjust quickly. And um, I, I was just lucky that my physicality and my personality was completely suited for figure skating. So um, I was never going to dunk a basketball. I was never going to play quarterback. You know, was, all these things that take, you know, size and height. So um, for me, it was gymnastics or figure skating, and they just happened to have a phenomenal rink in Bowling Green, Ohio, where I started skating. So um, for me, the size was a blessing. 
And I, I was uh, amazed uh, at looking at some of the stats on your height when you were younger. Uh, when you're 10 years old, 48 pounds, three feet, 11 inches. National average at 10 years old is four feet, six inches, 70 pounds. Um, how did that affect how kids treated you? Oh man, school? I got teased all the time. I was the easiest one to pick on because I was sickly, sick, sickly. Um, you know, I was, you know, I, I wanted to be kind of always in the center of everything and I was the easiest one to pick on, you know? And so uh, there'd be times on the playground at grade school where I'd be really getting roughed up. And, uh, you know, I get teased about being adopted. I get teased about being, you know, peanut, shrimpo, dwarf. I get called every single name in the book. Um, how, how did you handle it? You know, it hurt. You know, but my, my, my mother did something really important. When I was being teased about being adopted, she just said, say this. And so when the kids would say, well, you know, you're just adopted, you know, I'd, and my, I'd say, yes, my parents chose me. Your parents got stuck with whatever came out. And it, <laughs> it sort of ended it. I mean, that ended it. And so I realized that, you know, there's things I can do to kind of fend for myself. And uh, words were one of them. If I could stay one step ahead of them, um, verbally, then the physical side of it wouldn't be so rough. When you did stop growing for four years as a kid, what were your parents thinking was going on? They didn't know. I was, you know, being adopted, they just, was it normal? Am I going to be small? Am I going to be, you know, you don't know. When you're, when you have an adopted child, you kind of go, okay, what's going to, what's it going to be? And I have two now. I, I my daughter's growing like a weed. And my son's, you know, gotten, put him on an American diet and it's like, you know, he starts to get strong. And um, so they just, I think once they realized that I was really sick, they could see that I was getting sick. Um, no muscle development in my legs, distended stomach, um, and that I was really, my, I was pale. That's when I started touring hospitals. And, uh, you know, we go from, nope, no answers here. Let's go to the next one. Oh, no answers here. Let's go to the next one. Oh, no answers here. And it was finally getting to Boston Children's Hospital where I had every symptom of Schwachmann-Diamond syndrome. And so Dr. Harry Schwachmann, who found this, um, this condition in kids, I had every symptom and he put me through every test and he said, doesn't have it. I don't know what's going on. I have no idea what's going on. Go home and live a normal life. Just go home and just take them off all the restrictive diets. And, and it was there that um, my parents needed a morning off because after four years they were shattered. And um, I go to the skating rink on Saturday mornings with other kids. And so it was the first time I was with well kids, really, on a, dated, you know, on a, on a big way, doing all kinds of activities. You know, I'd go to school, but it was a little different. Um, this was like doing an activity with well kids. And it was like, wow, this is. And then when I realized that I could do it as well as they could, then that was, that was kind of like uh, self-esteem for the very first time. And then from then on, it was I was going to be a skater. When he told your parents to have you live a normal life, to you know, stop going to the hospitals, the treatment, um, was that encouraging, or do you think <laughs> it's a that, white flag. Or, or do you think they're like they're thinking at the time that this could be it? Yeah, it was basically go enjoy your days, go enjoy your days, and I think it shattered my mom because I, I, I was her favorite. Um, don't tell my brother and sister that. Um, I know Sue would be mad because when yeah. they, your parents brought you home for the first time, she wanted them to take <laughs> you back. Exchange me for right. a cuter kid. Right. Uh, <laughs> no, it, it um, yeah, you know, uh, growing up, 
um, and being different is, it's challenging. You know, it's hard. I'm past it now. When I was going through it, it was, um, it was painful because, you know, I was weird or I wasn't right or I was wrong, you know, living in hospitals by myself, you know, all those things. Um, but now that I'm through it, I realize that every single aspect of that built me to who I am today. What made you and your wife decide to adopt? You know, um, I joke about adoption. It's like, it's why you have kids. It's like, well, it seemed like a really good idea at the time. <laughs> and uh, Tracy fell in love with Haiti. She uh, had to get down there after the earthquake. She's been down, I think, 25 or 26 times now. Wow. And it was uh, getting ready to go down. She was volunteering at a nonprofit that serves Haiti. They had all these Christmas ornaments. She was telling me that there's one yeah. associated with the adoption that's still there. Yeah, yeah. And so Aiden saw it, and, they, and he said they were volunteering, um, getting you know things loaded up for the team to go down to Haiti. And he goes, who's that? And he goes, oh, that's John Paul. Tell me about John Paul. Oh, you'd love him. He smiles all the time. And he's a great athlete, and he's very smart, and he's very fun and happy. And he goes, we're getting Christmas for him. So, okay. And so Tracy was getting Christmas, um, sort of, and we got Christmas for Eveline too, because we found out he had a sister, and we're like, oh yeah, we'll get her Christmas too. And then, and um, what does that mean? Just like we just buy them. We we take their Christmas. We we go out and we shop for their Christmas okay. presents, and yep. they have a list on the back of the ornament if we can find it. Um, there's a list of what they wanted, and then um, they take it down on one of the trips, and they give the Christmas to the kids, and and it's really a beautiful thing in the orphanage. So. Um, before Tracy went down, uh, she Aiden did a video for John Paul, so she had to like find him. And when she found him, you know, it was one of those things where he just was with her all the time. And Evelyn was on one side, and John Paul was on the other, and a relationship started. And it became uh, where if if Tracy was leaving, John Paul's heart would go up to about 200. You know, just he was just. You know, he's just, he just—he loved her so much. And then I had this vivid dream the first before I went down the first time, where um, Evelyn and I are just going to have this great relationship. I just—I I just saw her in a dream, and and um, Evelyn wasn't one to engage really. She was kind of removed, and she just sort of like didn't really. When teams would go down, all the kids would run out and they'd jump into somebody's arms, and she would kind of do her own thing. And so when I went down the first time, I stepped out of the truck inside the gates of the orphanage. And Eveline came right up to me and she put her arms around me. And everybody was like, whoa, what is that? And she was in my arms the whole time I was down there. I was holding her, she'd sit on my lap, or she was always with me. Um, and I realized that, you know, um, I, I was being given information that this is going to be something special in your life and, and probably sooner than you anticipate. Uh, What's been the biggest challenge with transitioning them Wow. Um, all their coping mechanisms and survival skills they learned in the orphanage don't really do well here, you know? Well, like what? Oh, uh, controlling, the, controlling the information. It's like when um, Evelyn, especially when she first came home, she really didn't want to ever tell the truth, ever. And so it, it was just one of those things we've been working through. And she's, she's shown remarkable... Um, uh, progress in, in the last, even the last, after, you know, two years plus, 
in the last month or so, I mean, the light's getting a little bit brighter. She goes, oh, that doesn't work, but this does. And why wouldn't she want to tell the truth? Because that's how they, they survive down there. You know, if they all fend for each other. And if one gets in trouble, they all kind of like, you know, circle the wagon so that, and um, learning how the kids are disciplined and, and everything, you know, and, and I guess what they feel they have to do down there is, uh, it wouldn't fly here at all. Um, so teaching them that they're safe, teaching them that they're loved, teaching them that um, we're, you know, we're gonna do whatever we can, sacrifice for them, to, doing all these things that are so counter to what they've learned their entire lives, um, it's been a big adjustment, you know, and um, you know, the, the best place, you know, for Jean-Paul, um, best place for him to go when he's being scolded is just to shut down, just shut down. And nothing gets in, nothing comes out, just shuts down. And now, you know, he's, he's learning that it's just correction. It's not this massive, you know, obedience. And, and no, it's we're his parents and we love him and we want you know, everything to be best for him. And here's the best way to successfully live your life. And it's all those things that just take time, a lot of time, because when you look at the number of years they're in the orphanage and they learned how to live their lives in those years, now as young teenagers, it's like, man, it's hard enough when they're yours and they're teenagers, but when you know, they, they're coming from a difficult place, it's a challenge. How much do you believe your parents sacrificed for you? No, oh, unbelievably, they almost went bankrupt for me. They. My dad, you know, we were living in a very small house, and then he got tenure, then we moved into this bigger house. And it was really, everybody had their own room, and it was really great, and it was, everything was wonderful. And then my skating just sort of like, they had to sell the house to pay off their bills and move into a smaller house way out in the country. Why? Um, to support your skating? Just to pay off their debt. Okay. Um, when it came, when my mom was diagnosed with cancer, that day she said that I was, I had one year left in skating. They were going to keep me skating one more year. And then, um, then I'd, I'd just stop and then I could go to college. It was my senior year in high school. Um, it was the first time I've ever just pushed all my chips in and said, all right, let's, I'll, I'll do anything anybody tells me to do and I'll do it as hard as I possibly can. And things started to click. And so, um, the three nationals that I competed in before that were I was ninth out of nine, ninth out of 10, and then I moved up to junior and I was seventh out of nine. <laughs> so I mean, there was no, nothing there that shows promise or anything. It's just, I'm, I'm you know, one of the away team members in Star Trek, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm gonna be, you know, dismissed. Um, so for me, it was like, you know, what have I got to lose? I might as well just work really hard and, um, that year, I won um, Midwesterns, the sectionals, going to nationals, and it was just sort of like, oh, okay, well, things are looking better. And then I got to the nationals, and I landed my first triple in my program, and I won junior nationals in my last competition ever. <laughs> it's like, well, that's a good way to go out. But my mom, who just had her left breast removed and mostly inside of her left arm, was wearing a wig because she lost her hair to chemotherapy. She had this twinkle in her eye the whole week. And I go, what is, are you okay? She goes, I'm great. And I go, what's going on? She goes, I'll tell you, well, you could just have fun and compete, you know? Um, what happened was I'd caught the eye of a coach, um, a very good coach. Um, that year he coached Dorothy Hamill and John Curry to Olympic gold medals. 
And uh, he wanted an American guy that he could form and train. And, and he saw me and he goes, um, all right, if I get him a sponsor, will he come to Denver? I was like, let me, let me check my schedule. <laughs> okay, I can do that. And so this wealthy couple in Chicago, uh, my mom stopped in Chicago on their way to Colorado Springs for the Nationals and met with them and fell in love with them. Just the nicest people. And um, reminded her of family and, and just all the, and they liked her a lot. And so they decided to go ahead and sponsor me. So after the competition was over, um, my mom said, on the way here I met the people that are gonna pay for your skating from now on. And I was like, I thought I was done. It's just, you're just getting started. And uh, so from then on, I was, um, the McLaren's looked after me and I had another set of parents. What do you think you learned from the sacrifices that your parents had to make to support you? That's love. You know, that's, that's how you love your children. You know, you, you sacrifice your comfort, you sacrifice your convenience, you sacrifice your financial means you sacrifice everything to make sure that they're okay. It's not about you anymore, it's about them. They never went out and ate in fancy restaurants or any restaurants, they just, they made everything at home. You know, so knowing that they canned all their own food, they'd buy beef by the side of beef and put freeze it, so there was never any restaurant expense. Every expense was like covered, canned jams, canned um, pickles, um, every vegetable was frozen, everything was, you know, everything was done so that we would never have to worry about the expense of living. Everything was just sort of, um, they're doing the best they can. So when I'd wanna go to a skating party after a competition, you'd have all these you know, skating moms and diamonds and furs and you know, they're all done up and my mom would be wearing the same thing she wore five years ago. And I could see it in her eyes just how humiliated she was. And I'd always, you know, I regretted, that was the one time in Denver at the sectionals that I, I really felt the worst because she didn't have the ability to get all dressed up and all dolled up like the other moms and she knew it and she was very self-conscious. And uh, I look at that and it's like, that's sacrifice, you know. So I could have fun, she would feel that way. She passed away when you were in your late teens from cancer and why do you feel it was that that made you start to believe in yourself? I think it was when I knew the morning that I was told, we were in a room till 3.30 in the morning and my brother-in-law was sleeping on the couch in the, in the family room and, and uh, he came in at about 8.30 and he goes, your mother's gone. And all I could think to say was, I know. And so I, I got up and I just, you know, got dressed and I just walked in the backyard, you know, um, just before you got to the garden in the back, we had about three and a half acres. We had a pond and I just walked around the pond just thinking about her and crying a lot. Um, and, uh, and I just, in that walk, I just decided that um, I'd seen people in their mourning be, um, be self-destructive. And I, I didn't wanna do that. And I knew that with her sacrifice, I had to be, I had to honor that sacrifice. And I had to honor her and her love for me and her support for me. She was really a cool mom. And so I decided that I was gonna honor her by being the person that she thought I could be. Your constant optimism, it's- Sickening, it, it's disgusting. I, I've heard it's <laughs> infectious. Um, where do you think that comes from? <laughs> well, I mean, look at me. You know, it's, there's no reason in the world. 
you're sitting in my house that I have no right owning, right? <laughs> um, having a career that hasn't been done since. Being a short, bald, half-neutered, chemoed, radiated, surgically repaired, retired male figure skater of what was an unknown ethnic origin. Okay, that'd be my, my personal ad. Um, you just created the promo for well, it. Yeah, I mean, it was like, wh how can I not be optimistic? If, I can, if, if all this stuff can happen, anything can happen. Nothing comes of negativity. Nothing comes of, like, oh, it's not me. Um, if something's presented, you know, to me, it's like you've got to go after it 100%. And, you know, if it's the Lord's will, it's going to happen. If it's not, then, you're, then you'll know and, it, and you'll be guided somewhere else. And it's really easy, you know, for us as a society. And, you know, we're, we're, so, um, uh, we're so blessed that we, we, sweat, we, sweat, we sweat the small stuff all the time. And, and I look at, you know, what's possible and I look at what's out there and it's just, it's beautiful. I mean, it's amazing what can come from people just deciding. You know, it's the, the, the random acts of kindness. It's being respectful. It's smiling at people when they say hi. It's holding the door. It's, you know, picking up somebody's groceries, you know, that's in front of you or behind you. It's, you know, it's just kindness. I mean, it's all based in kindness and sincere kindness. Um, you know, it, all things, I mean, you can take somebody's day and turn it upside down just by the simplest thing. And, and knowing that, it's like, why dread anything? You know, everything is, if, if I can be redeemed, anyone can. How much um, do you always believe the constant optimism and how much could be putting on a strong face for others? Well, I think when you've had my health history, you know, history, <laughs> I, <laughs> when you've had my health history and, um, okay, I had four years in and out of hospitals and I ended up finding some way to, you know, compete at the highest levels. Okay. When you're a male figure skater and you have no place to go as a professional and you kind of make it happen, it's like, oh, okay. And then you get knocked down with cancer and then you survive. Then you get knocked down with, you know, brain tumor, then brain tumor, then brain tumor. It's like, that's, that's just the way it is, <laughs> you know, it's all right. This too shall pass. Instead of getting all angry and frustrated and, you know, and, and panicking and getting scared and everything else, it's just surrender to the moment. <sighs> this too shall pass. And uh, whenever I'm really up against it, I have a t-shirt I printed that says, this too shall pass. And when I write, my kids see it, they go, you okay? <laughs> you all right? What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm good. Just Wear the T-shirt, um, but it, it, you know, nothing now is forever. You know, anything can be changed, taken away, um, added to. Um, there's a constant flow. It's that roller coaster I talked about. You know, it's the highest of the highs, lowest of the lows. But what I've noticed is every single time something bad happens. I used to think for every good thing there was something bad on the other side, and then when I survived cancer, I realized I had it all wrong. Because something, when I was diagnosed with cancer, kind of woke up, you know? And I talked to a lot of cancer patients about this. It's like, you're given the news and you're shrouded, I mean, completely covered in fear. And that you do the math of suffering and diminishing and dying and all this stuff that comes with it. And then all of a sudden, something shifts. And it's like, no, I gotta I got to get to work here. 
You know, I've, I want my life back. I want to get back to what I was doing before. I want to get out there and I want to, and then you see, all of a sudden you, you wake up and I don't know how many people have had that awakening that have, haven't had their life threatened. But once you see that, I realize that for all the junk that's happened, man, there was something good on the other side. I was an unwanted pregnancy and I was adopted by two amazing parents. And then I got sick and I found skating. And then I lost and I found, you know, that I, uh, I, I started to, you know, do a little bit better. And then I lost my mom and I, I'd found the greatest part of my character. And there was all these things that, you know, you, I don't leave anybody behind, but it's all my word. You look at, you know, just all the tragedies in your life and, and how you're meant to be um, resilient, you know. I mean, God gave us fragile, temporary bodies that are amazingly resilient. You know, so six months after, six and a half months after the diagnosis, I went through chemotherapy for about three and a half months and a big, huge surgery. I call it 38 staples, filet of dwarf, you know, it's kind of like the big one. And I was performing from March 17th diagnosis, October 29th, I'm performing. Um, and I thought, yeah, nothing, nothing's going to knock me down. You learned you had testicular cancer. How did you find out, and what was your reaction? <laughs> well, I had abdominal pain, and I couldn't stand up. And when you're, finally, I was 50 cities into a 60-city American tour, and I was like, I can't stand it. It hurts. So I thought I worked myself into an ulcer. I go into the emergency room in Peoria. The doctor puts me through a battery of tests, and then he says, you know, you had breakfast. Let me do the test again. So I did the test again. And uh, he came back and he said, we found a mass. And I burst out laughing. And he goes, what's so funny? And I go, well, nobody's ever used the word mass in description of me before, <laughs> you know? It's like, and he goes, no, 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 this is either benign malignant or something else. And then it was, I'm being diagnosed with cancer. And the fear is unbelievable. And then um, I woke up. It was like, I did the show that night because I had to. And I realized throughout the show, there was one part I, I remember like it was yesterday where I'm, I'm doing this bleeding heart ballad, I Who Have Nothing, and it was just, I'd never done anything like that before. It was really an emotional thing like that. I was always doing comedy. And I did this really deep ballad, and I'm, I'm about to get ready to go into triple lots, you know. And I'm really starting to get into the character of this. I am, this is my last show, and I'll never skate again. I'm gonna die, and all these things. And I look into the front row, and there's this woman sitting in the front row, really pretty lady in the front row. And I'm skating over there and she's sort of doing, <laughs> doing her hair and makeup. And I'm like, <laughs> I burst out laughing. I was like, okay, <laughs> this, is, this, one, this is however I want to do it because you know, the world's going to keep on being the world. I got to get to work and, and um, let's get busy. And so I, um, I called my manager, Bob Kane, who's one of the best friends I've ever had in my life. and. Um, Former head of IMG. Former head of IMG. Um, he's, he's like the greatest. He's the smartest, greatest guy. He's my crisis manager. So I called him up and I said, Bob, um, are you sitting down? He said, yeah. And I go, no, you're not. You answer the phone in the kitchen. You know, and you need to sit down. I need to tell you something. He goes, okay. So pause. Okay. Well, I'm sitting down. What's up? And I go, I have cancer. And it was like, there's a silence on the, end, on the other end of the phone where I knew I kicked him in the stomach. I just knew it. And he just said, where are you now? I said, well, I'm headed to the show. And he goes, all right. Um, get on your bus tonight after the, after the show and come to Cleveland. I'll take care of everything. So I went to the Cleveland Clinic. And uh, Bob banging on my door about 10 o'clock in the morning. I'd slept, you know, because it was an all-night trip. Right. 
And uh, <laughs> I went in, they did a biopsy, which was a little bit scary. Um, and then the next day, the doctors came in, there was like three or four of them, and they're all in there, you know, they, they go, uh, we know the source of your problem. And I go, okay. And they go, you have a stage three germ cell, um, uh, germ cell, uh, testicular in origin. And it was like, wait a minute, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. And they go, what? I go, I have, um, that cancer? I, I, and they go, you have testicular cancer? It's like, no, no, it's not going to work. Uh-uh. No, it's not going to work. And they go, no, no, no. If, if you had to choose a cancer, this is a good one. And I go, who choose a cancer? <laughs> Come on. And they go, no, you need to take this thing seriously. And it's like, no, I don't. No, I don't. Because all the memories of my mom came flooding back. And it was like, when she was going through her cancer, it was like, Oh, this chemotherapy. I've finally found a way to lose all this weight. And, oh, this chemotherapy is great. I don't have any desire to smoke. And, and I've always hated my hair. These wigs are so much easier. I go, that's who I want to be. I want to be her. And so people got it pretty quick. Uh, my nurse treated me like an eight-year-old, you know, decorated my chemo bags, um, SpongeBob and Scooby-Doo Band-Aids, you know. It was... No one was allowed in my room unless it made me laugh. And it was all because of the example set by my mom. So looking at, you know, so much of it, and I remember quote after quote after quote, you know, um, Eric Hyden said after his Olympics, it's not the events in your life that define you, it's how you deal with them. And I truly believe that. You know, I've, I've seen so many warrior champions, um, uh, bald ladies in supermarkets. It's like, yeah, that's strong. That's brave. That's tough. Not many people, you know, would say, oh, I don't know, I would never do that. But it's like, yeah, you're telling the world anything can, any, everything's possible. And um, so that's kind of become my job lately as being kind of the morale officer. Of, yeah. you know, this is all right. It's okay. No matter what it is, it's going to be okay. So th that was in 97, you end up overcoming that 2004 you learn you have a brain tumor um t tell about why you were rehearsing how to tell your wife and what you were planning on saying oh man um it was just how do you how you know i've got a 14 month old son brand new marriage you know um, it, it was nine months and two days after we got married that we're parents it was like whoa i mean so we're doing everything on an accelerated thing and i quit stop skating and all these changes in our lives and and um, I find out um, the day they arrive that um, I have a brain tumor. And so I, I go directly from the appointment to, to the hotel to meet my family. And um, Trace goes, what's going on? I go, I'll tell you upstairs. She goes, okay. So we get up to the room. And we put Aiden on the floor, and he takes the, t the phone off, and he's like banging the cradle on, you know. I don't know how telephones work in hotels if kids are going to be doing that all the time. But so he's just doing what all little kids do. And um, I looked at Tracy, and I, I didn't know how to tell her, but to tell her. I go, I have a brain tumor. And she, without even skipping a beat, just grabbed both my hands and started to pray. And I realized um, in that moment that, I knew where I was taking everything from then on. It was just, everything was leading up to that moment. You know, my whole faith journey was leading up to that moment. 
and it just ignited everything. And from then on, it was, it is, it is what it is and whatever it takes. And we were just prayerful. And um, I mean, the story that came out of that was extraordinary because they had to, after a week of praying, they said, we have to go in. Um, we're going to stick a needle to your brain. We found a safe corridor. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not using any of it. You know, no, 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 you can lose speech, you can lose memory, you can have a stroke, you can have muscle, everything. I, mean, I was like, they have to tell you all the terrible things that can happen. So I woke up from the biopsy. And, and, and you're, you're joking a little bit about it now, but I mean, that night before the biopsy It was, was pretty scary. Yeah, we were up most of the night, you know, just sort of talking about, you know, what, how life could change and just being together and just life, you know, just, you know, how are we going to, what are we going to do and how are we going to, you know, I, it's hard to remember back then because, you know, I, I tend to hang on to the really good stuff, mm -hmm. you know, um, but I know that we were up late and, um, and I had the first surgery, which is really good. You know what, you want to have the first surgery <laughs> in the morning and uh, my doctor seemed to be okay with it, but he said it's going to really test me, this particular surgery. So, you know, Tracy and I just prayed, and we just knew that whatever was going to happen was going to happen. So um, I wake up at 10.20. I knew where I was, who I was, why I was there, and I went, test. Okay, I can speak. I guess the operation was successful. And then the doctor came in smiling, and then Tracy came in smiling, and then our dear friend Maria Miller came in smiling, and they go, we know what it is. And I go, what is it? And they go, it's a craniopharyngioma. And I go, okay, you might as well have told me it's a blah, 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 because I have no idea what that is. Right. And they go, no, no, we know what we're going to do now. And it's like, okay, great. So um, they looked up craniopharyngioma, and they gave us some information on it. And it was, my wife goes, oh, listen to this. Craniopharyngiomas are usually detected early in a child's life due to a lack of growth and development. Bingo. It's like, man. They never diagnosed what I had as a kid. It must have been this, because you're born with craniopharyngiomas. You're just born with them. And it's just something your pituitary does. It builds these tumor cells, and they grow, and they create all kinds of mischief. And, and so um, you know, mystery solved. You know, I always joke around that if you live long enough, all questions will be answered. <laughs> and that was one of those. It was like, wow. This must have been what I had when I was little and I didn't grow all those years. I must have just hit my head funny or something and it stopped the tumor from growing. That was 2004, 2010, second brain tumor. Yeah. Um, how did you go about deciding how to treat it? You know, I, I always try to get, it's not about second opinions, it's about seventh opinions, you know. Um, and I had a great team at, at the Cleveland Clinic and, and they, you know, there's a foremost authorities in Boston and, um, you know, this time it presented itself really clean. Um, the first time it was kind of wrapped around stuff, so I did radiation. The second time it was, it looked like a pencil eraser almost. It was kind of like that shape. And so it's, a, it's, it's presenting itself beautifully to be removed surgically. And so Dr. Laws uh, in Boston pretty much invented the surgery. And so I went to him, figuring if he's done 10,000 of these, you know, <laughs> pretty good deal. And so I um, decided to have it surgically removed. And they, they got it all out. And they said they even were able to kind of scrape, you know, where it was attached, you know, to kind of try to get, take as many, take all the cells they thought at the time. And um, that year I'd spent the entire year working up getting back in shape to skate. 51, I was able to you know, kind of get back to backflip and everything, which is kind of fun and exciting. But um, man, you know, um, going through that surgery and then the repair from the complication, which 
can happen. Uh, turned into an aneurysm, and then um, I went to the Cleveland Clinic, and they were able to obliterate the aneurysm. Um, and it was a it was a really challenging summer. It was like, all in all, between my shoulder surgery I had in April, and then the brain stuff starting in June, I had ten surgeries that year. What's your reaction when you find out you have a third brain tumor? Well, I mean, it's not something I really want to deal with. Right. You know? I mean, honestly, but I mean that. As much as the pattern has emerged that it's going to be here every six years, the pattern has emerged that um, if I just continue to do what I've been doing, um, something magnificent's on the other side. So just deal with it. I, I can't. I can't wish it away. You know, I can pray it away, but I can't. Um, I can't just say, "Well, I'm just going to ignore this thing." So I'm keeping an eye on it. The really cool thing was when they. Found it in October, uh, I'm sorry, end of August. Um, they, they measured it, and it's all right there. And then they shot it again in November to track its growth. And the two MRIs were identical. So I'm really... Um, which is great. Which is phenomenal. Which buys me time to gather more opinions. And correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is you don't intend to treat it if it does not grow. Why bother? You know, I, it, I was born with it, and for 36 years, it didn't do anything. So if it doesn't do anything for another 36 years, I'll be 94 years old. <laughs> what are the physical issues that come with, um, you know, all the treatments you've had to have? They give you a medical bracelet which will not get, nobody will give me even one shot on the golf course because I wear this thing. It's like, come on. How, how many else of you guys wear a bracelet in this crowd, you know? So um, it's just, um, it's complete hormone replacement. So it's daily regimen of uh, thyroid and there's a steroid and then testosterone. There's a lot of things I have to do daily just to kind of manage. Um, but what's really wild, and again, it's just kind of an emerging pattern in my life is I go to battle with endocrinologists because they go, okay, you're this age, this weight, this height, you know, here you go. It's like, whoa, 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 don't you want to know anything about me? <laughs> He's like, no, no, it's, it's just chemistry. It's all the same, doesn't really matter. Well, I was suffering, you know, for a long, long time, just uh, I was up and down with energy and mood and um, everything was kind of like, I was weak and then I wasn't. Because of the hormones just you're taking? Because, yeah, I was just all over the map and I was, you know, I was getting kind of, um, opposite of what I usually am. I was getting kind of like sad and worn down and kind of, you know, and I met um, this friend of mine from San Francisco who I met through the Pituitary Network Association. I have a pituitary brain tumor. Um, he goes, I want you to meet an endocrinologist. And I go, why would you do that to me? You know how much I just resent them. And he goes, no, 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 you'll like this one. And I go, okay, tell me. I go, well, she was my fellow and um, uh, she had a craniopharyngioma brain tumor uh, removed by Dr. Laws, same way as yours, when she was 14 years old and became an endocrinologist to make her world better because she knew she was being underserved. And I was like, <laughs> I'll go anywhere. If she's in Beijing, I'll commute I, anywhere. Where is she? She was in Nashville. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, thank you. One visit, four days later, I felt like a brand new person. What was changed? She changed every, everything. She changed everything. Adjusted it, tweaked it, moved it, changed it. 
um, you know, source steroid different, um, uh, testosterone different. Um, you know, everything everything changed. She changed thyroid. She changed everything. And then in like four days, it was like, this is what it feels like to feel good again. And I was like, wow. And um, now, you know, we're on speed dials. You know, texting. Okay, I need to see you. All right, I'm coming. I'll get my blood work done. I'll be get first possible opportunity. And um, it's like finding that right person changes everything. It's it's been amazing. What led you to deciding to start your foundation? When I lost my mom to cancer, I became a fundraiser. And then when I went through it, I realized, my goodness, there's a lot of like massive gaps in the cancer community. You know, I, I, I went online to figure out what testicular cancer was and it was all 12 syllable words. And it was like, I'm not smart enough to be sick. <laughs> Are you kidding me? So we created um, a website that's everything you need about chemotherapy. It's called chemocare.com. Anything you don't know about chemotherapy, all in eighth grade English, Spanish, and on Google Translate, it's any language in the world. And you were expecting this thing to get like, a goal was three million hits in a year, right? Like three million hits a year was like, that's, that's our goal. We're gonna get there somehow. Three million hits a year, and then now we're really serving people. It's over two million hits a month. And when they diagnosed my brain tumor and they said there's a medical option, they put the papers down in front of me and it was a chemocare dot com printout. I was like, okay, now this has come full circle. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then the other side of it was, I, I, I felt isolated. I mean, I, I didn't know, I didn't know how, if I was doing all right. You know, how do you gauge? Am I, am I good at chemo? I mean, I don't really know if I'm doing this right. I don't know how I'm supposed to feel. I don't know what the pitfalls are, where, you know, where the traps are. And sure enough, I got to round three. It's, it's, um, the regimen for testicular cancer is it's about an uh, eight-hour um, infusion of chemotherapy drugs, five days in a row, 16 days off, five days in a row, 16 days off, five days in a row, um, and then do that four, four rounds. So that's 20 days of eight hours of chemo total. By round three, I wanted to die. And, and it wasn't like I was so sick or anything. It was just... My life had changed so drastically in a, in a little over a month, you know, two months, that I went from touring and doing what I like to do, being in front of all those people and blah, 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 to now I just, I'm bloated. Um, every hair on my body fell out. You know, I just, um, I didn't feel great, but I just, I got so depressed. I didn't know that round three is the trap. There was no one to tell me that round three is tough. There was no one to tell me that, um, that the post-surgical swelling was going to be profound. There was no one to tell me that all these things that were normal and part of it, and it's okay, this too shall pass. So we created um, a program where we paired newly diagnosed patients with survivors of the same disease and treatment cycle so that they have someone there that truly understands what they're trying to say and do, and they have someone there that um, uh, is a survivor that works as a role model as well. So the Fourth Angel Mentoring Program is is really doing well, and there's like eight, almost eight, almost 900 mentors now. How did an evening with Scott Hamilton and friends come about? It, you know, how do I, how am I able to bring people together to fundraise? Well, I mean, I, 
I did touring shows for years, and you know we would we had like almost twenty thousand people in St. Louis at the big arena there, and I've never been scared like that to step on the ice because they're I mean they're right on top of you, mm -hmm. and um, I figured if if we can get that many people to get you know to come together for skating, knowing how many people are going to face cancer now, I mean the statistics are horrible. One in two men, one in three women will face cancer in their lifetime. You know, there's a lot of people out there that want to make a difference. And there's a lot of people out there that like skating. So let's do um, an ice skating show. And I got really spoiled because, you know, the older you get, the more stuff you want, right? <laughs> you know, it's just the nature of the bees. Um, live music. So we bring in an iconic artist. Um, you know, an and iconic you've artist. Only, you've only had some okay acts. Well, man, we've had some great ones. Um, you know, I look back over it, and I, you know, I'm a music guy you know I love music and just the fact that some of my heroes when I was growing up I've got to have at the show so it's it's Aretha Franklin and Michael Feinstein and um, Liza Minnelli and um, Cheap Trick and Michael Bolton and um, Michael um, McDonald and Sidney Lauper and Kenny Loggins and um, Vince Gill and Cheryl Crow um, who I love and adore forever and a day. Um, we've had all these incredible artists. You have a favorite uh, moment or two from oh, yeah. all the years doing the shows? Um, our, it was, you know, um, our 13th year. You know, you think, okay, 13 years, eh, we're, gonna, we're gonna be a little unlucky the 13th year. So we decided, um, I decided that in the history of skating up to that point, there'd been 13 Olympic gold medalists in figure skating on the 13th year. I got, it seems to be, so I got on the phone and I just called them all up. I said, you wanna to come to Cleveland and do this thing? And so I had every living Olympic gold medalist on stage at the same time in Cleveland for the show. And it was just this thing, everyone from Tenley Albright and Dick Button to Sarah Hughes and, and Evan Lysacek, Christy, Dorothy, Peggy, um, the Jenkins brothers, um, Hey, uh, Carol Heiss, I mean, they're all 13 were there. And it was just looking at that was just a great moment for Cleveland. And, um, and it was just one of those things where it's like, I can't believe my life has come to this, where I, I guess I'm a member of this crazy club where um, I can look at and I can say, these are my, these are my peers. It doesn't make sense to me that, um, with everything um, I've seen and faced and done that um, like Dick Button is my friend. <laughs> That's unbelievable. And um, Hayes, and, um, Hayes Jenkins and Carol Heiss Jenkins come to the show every year in Cleveland. And just the fact that, um, that it's come to this is just, it boggles my mind. And it's so humbling um, to know that um, for whatever reason, um, you know, I've been blessed with these opportunities. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. If you're in the mood for more interviews and behind the scenes access with additional athletes, celebrities, and public figures, head to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. And if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to leave a rating and review. Thanks again for listening.